Have you ever seen those giant sequoia trees? You know, over in, in California, if you've been there, they have these humongous, like, giant sequoia redwoods that grow so tall. You can actually, in some places um, on the road, they have, like, sections of the tree cut out, and you can actually drive a car through the tree. It's incredible. These trees grow so enormous, so tall. But did you know that their roots cannot hold them in the ground by themselves. If the tree was just left alone with the root system, it would not be enough to hold the tree in the ground. So all of these trees, these giant sequoia trees, they grow in groves. And what happens is when the tree reaches a certain height, the roots of the trees, they, they intertwine themselves with the roots of other sequoia trees so they can continue to grow healthy and strong. It's, it's almost literally like they're holding hands with each other so they grow strong together. Um, because sequoia trees, they can grow to be over 275 feet tall, okay? But their roots only go 12 feet deep. Only 12 feet deep, but 275 feet tall, but they spread out over an acre wide. So it's as if they're holding hands with all these other trees so these trees together can grow big and strong. And isn't that kind of the way it is for us people too? You know, if we're going to grow up, we're going to be big and strong, we're going to be healthy, that we can't do it alone. No, no baby can just be left alone to grow big and strong. We, we need other people to come and to hold our hand and to help us grow. This is, uh, happens. And in the brokenness of uh, humanity, the early church realized that the only way that they were going to grow strong and healthy and to be able to impact the Roman Empire and everything that was going on in the early church uh, was that this church was going to have to understand that they're going to have to intertwine their lives that they're going to have to hold hands with each other like those giant sequoia trees if they were going to grow up to be taller and stronger and healthier. And this is a lesson the early church learned. It's a lesson now in post-Christian America that with all the brokenness of our homes and our communities and as a nation that we must learn all over again. That if we're going to really accomplish our mission of sharing Jesus and impacting people, that we've got to intertwine our lives to connect to one another if we're going to grow and be strong and healthy. So I want you to see it in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Go ahead and turn there with me. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And you need to understand that this passage presents a picture of a newborn church, okay? This is, the church is still in her infancy. It is just getting started. In order for this church to mature, to grow healthy, to grow strong, to make an impact, that it had to learn the lesson of intertwining their lives and connecting with each other and loving one another. This world is broken. It's tough. It's dark. And in order to shine brightest, we must shine together. We'll see that. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving uh, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each 
as any had need. In writing to the church of Thessalonica, later on, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we loved you so much, that we cared for you so much, that we shared with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. We share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. The, the early church was under enormous pressure, incredible pressure. Not, not only were they struggling to break away from their church, Jewish heritage and Jewish customs and Jewish culture that they were born into. I mean, the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish leaders, they were trying to get a hold of the Christians and bring them back into the Jewish community. So uh, there arose a group of people called the Judaizers who reached out to the Christians and said, hey, in order to be truly Christian, if you really want to be Christian, you got to be a Jew first. And so they mixed this uh, unholy theology of uh, Judaism culture and Christian uh, thought. And uh, Paul had to write about this to the Galatians. And so he confronts this thinking and he, and he tells the Galatians, hey, if you're trying to add anything to Jesus, if you're trying to make it faith alone, uh, or faith in Jesus plus works, faith in Jesus plus tradition, faith in Jesus plus culture, that is not the gospel. The gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. And so Paul needs to write to the Galatians and to explain this to them. But there's all kinds of persecutions going on in the early church. It wasn't just the, the Jews. It was, it was also persecution throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, you can, uh, you can read about religious leaders, church leaders who were martyred for the faith. They were executed for simply claiming Christ. And so there's a lot of pressure coming down from the Jewish government. There were false teachings. There were heresies that began to spring up at that time. Uh, one of the uh, most common was was the teaching of Gnosticism. This idea that uh, anything that's physical is evil. Okay, so here's what they did. is They said, well, Jesus, he didn't really become man. He only appeared to be a man. Because as humans, we're flesh, we're body, we're... Uh, and so for Jesus, if he were to take on that body, if he were to become flesh, that would be evil. Because anything physical is evil. So Jesus only appeared to be a man. He only looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. So they denied this fundamental doctrine of the incarnation that God became man. And with all of these pressures, with heresies, with the Roman Empire, with Jewish culture, with all of these coming against the Jewish the, the early Christian church, the church is trying to hold on to Jesus. The Jesus that, that the apostles had witnessed about and had talked about and had told them about. The, the true Jesus of the scriptures. The Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament. Okay, the New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. Um, but they know that unless they hold on to Jesus, the true historical Jesus, that unless they hold on to him... That between the persecutions of the Roman Empire, between the threat of the Jewish culture, between the heresies that were taking place all over uh, the empire, that they were going down. That they, they didn't stand a chance. That they must hold on to Jesus. And as they're doing that, and as they face all these struggles from numerous different directions, they also knew and realized that holding on to Jesus would also mean holding on to one another. 
Because you're being tempted from this group and you're being tempted and threatened from that group and you're hearing these things and so we've got to hold on together as we hold on to Jesus. And so they begin to intertwine their lives together. They connect to one another. They meet up. Hey, we'll do whatever it takes for you because we realize what's going on here. We're going to have to learn family all over again because, and so they came to understand that every family needs a church family. Every family needs a spiritual family. And so they begin to think of family in a much different way. In the culture of the early church, it was quite common in the culture of that time that if somebody said, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to become a Christ follower, that they would suddenly be thrown out of their family. Uh, That you would be disowned. You, you go, you tell your father and mother, hey, I'm going to start following Jesus. I'm joining this group of Christians over here that the father and mother would say, that's it. You're no longer a son, a daughter of mine. You're out of here. And they would literally hold your funeral service right then. They would gather their friends together. They would hold a funeral service. You were dead to them. And that's, that's the culture uh, where the church was born. And it still happens in some cultures in the world. I got, a, I got a friend of mine over in uh, Sierra Leone. His name's David. It used to be Muhammad. And David, he grew up in a Muslim family, and uh, he would hear the church music as he would go to his mosque, and he'd hear the church music, and so he began just to, just to go to the church and see what was going on. And, and as he was with the church, worshiping God and seeing this, um, he eventually gave his life over to Jesus. He goes home, and he tells his family I'm following Jesus now. And his dad said, you are dead to me. Get out of my house. And if you ever come back, I'll kill you. And so David leaves, or he changes his name at that point from Muhammad to David, leaves. And then he actually receives word from uh, his brothers. Hey, uh, dad has left the home. He's so irate at what you're doing. He's looking for you to kill you. You've got to be careful. And so it still happens, all right? It doesn't happen in this country, thankfully, but it still happens in places around the world that you claim Christ and then you are disowned by your family. Um, And this is how it was. Someone decides to follow Christ and the follower is thrown out of their family. They are excommunicated. And even if they weren't physical orphans, even if they weren't like kicked out on the street and said, hey, you know, you're dead to me, it's still oftentimes they were at least emotional orphans where they're going through something that no one else in the family's going through. And they feel ostracized, they feel alone. And you can see in Paul's letters that he's going to have to deal with this sometimes. He's, he's going to talk about uh, wives who come to faith in Jesus, but their husband doesn't believe. And so now there's this issue of divorce, and what do you do, and, and how, do you, how do you interact? Um, there's all kinds of brokenness in the early church because people are coming out of broken families to say, I trust in Jesus above all else. You remember that gut-wrenching account in the Gospels when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and and there's that interaction and and he just walks away with all of his stuff and he's sad, but hey, I've still got my stuff, so he walks away. And then Peter turns to Jesus and says, Lord, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus looks at 
Peter and he looks at the disciples, these men who have literally left everything. They've left their jobs, they've left their families, they've left their homes, they've left everything and they follow Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or anything else for the sake of the gospel, you will receive 100 times as much. And then he goes on to say, that anyone who's not willing, that, that I have come, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the world, but I've come to turn a man against his son. I've come to turn a daughter against her mother. I've come to turn uh, family relationships inside out. I, this is what I've come to do. And anyone who is not willing to leave father or mother, anyone who's not willing to leave son or daughter, Anyone who's not willing to leave home or land or anything else for the sake of the gospel is not worthy of me. You must take up your cross and follow me. This is what Jesus said. And the early church soon realized that because they lived it. These people did have to leave father, mother, son, daughter. They left family. They left everything they knew. They left job. They left whatever. And they took up their cross and they began following Jesus. There was nothing easy about believing in Jesus. Okay, it cost them everything. And so these people from broken families, they've left everything and they begin meeting together. And the church understood that if the gospel is going to advance, that us broken people coming from all kinds of backgrounds where we've been uh, ostracized and we've been left alone, that we're going to have to band together. We're going to have to look out for one another. And so they begin to intertwine their lives with each other. They begin to become family. And they would have to understand that they had to pull together. That every family, every person needs a spiritual family. Not related by blood, but related by faith. Now, sometimes in the church, you hear this language like brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, you know, and some churches, everybody's brother, sister, brother, sister. And when I was younger in the faith and growing up, I'd hear that term, and I, it was kind of silly to me a little bit, you know? It was kind of weird, like, wow. Why, why does everybody call each other brother or sister? Or something? I mean, I get the whole, like, we're adopted into God's family, but it still sounds kind of odd because I think of my own family, right? I don't call my sister, hey, Sister Sarah. I that would sound weird. So why, why, why does that happen? Why, why do we do that in the church? Well, I didn't get it because I didn't understand the significance of the terms, especially for the people at that time. Uh, can you imagine just having told your father or mother, that you're going to be a Christ follower. And then your mom and dad says, that's it. You're dead to me. Out of the house, out of the family. And then they call all their friends over. They hold your funeral service and you are literally dead to them. They pass you in the street sometimes and they just keep on going. They, they look at you like you're a stranger in the crowd. They, they don't even recognize that you're a person. Right? You're airbrushed out of all the family photo albums. You, it's, it's like you no longer exist anymore in their family. Now you've got nowhere to go. Nobody cares about you. And so you walk to the place where the church gathers. Maybe it's in somebody's home. Maybe, maybe it's a public uh, meeting facility or something. And you show up. And you walk into that place and you tell them, Hey, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I got nowhere to go. I've just been kicked out of my family. 
And then the people there at that meeting, somebody stands up and says, I know your story. I experienced something similar. You're my brother. And somebody else stands up right after that and they say, I know your story too. Experienced the same thing. You're my sister. I know your story. And one by one, the meeting begins to stand up and they say, you're my brother, you're my sister. Well, they say, you're family. You have family here. And they're surrounded by brothers and sisters that they never even knew they had. And then that prophecy that Jesus said that, hey, you'll receive a hundred times as much, they begin to feel it right there in that room. And there's a stronger connection now all of a sudden to these people that they're related to by faith than even the people they were related to by blood. These people had left everything and they show up and now they're embraced into this new family. These orphans now adopted and now they realize the joy of being adopted. It wasn't weird. You know, it wasn't, wasn't creepy. It wasn't just like some luxury for some. It was everybody. Everybody realized that, hey, I have church family. I have a spiritual family and every family needs a spiritual family. If we're ever going to go strong, if we're ever going to grow to be tall and healthy, we need one another. And then what does a good family do for each other? They look and they say, man, you do have nothing. You've got, you had to leave everything to follow Jesus. Here, here's some food. Here, here's, here's a place to stay. Do I, do I need to sell this piece of property in order to make sure that you make it? Okay, I'll do that for you. Whatever it takes, we're, we're going to look out for you. Why? Because this is what a good family does. We care for one another. We, we look out for one another. We know your need because we've been there too. We've experienced it too. And there are stories all over this room just like yours who've left so much, who've left everything to follow Jesus. You know, when you have kids and... Uh, one of the fun things is taking the older sibling to meet the younger newborn whenever the, the, the younger one's born, you know this. And so you take the older brother or sister, you come to the hospital, and it's not like you go to the nursery and say, hey, you pick out which one you want, right? It's, like, it's not that way, right? You go to the room and you say, hey, meet your brother, meet your sister. You're going to love them so much. You don't really have the option of whether you want to love them or whether you want to accept them in your family. They're just going to be family and you are going to love them. And then they grow up a little bit and there's arguments, there's fighting and whatever. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes this happens with my girls and I'll tell them, you know, they'll come to me with something. I'll say, hey, you guys need to either work it out or like I can give you some chores and you can like work it out together. But you're going to work it out because this is what we do in a good family. And mommy and daddy, we're going to love her just like we're going to love you. And they're going to call us mom and dad just like you're going to call us mom and dad because we're a family. And so in a good family, this is what we do. You're going to love each other. Daddy said. Now the church has to learn that these brothers and sisters who are showing up they, they didn't just get to take a vote and say, all right, yeah, we'll take that one, but not that one. No, these, these people who are showing up and who are claiming to follow Christ, the church says, your family will love you because daddy said. This is what a good family does for each other. We, we love the family of God. Now, if their actions tell us that they're not family members, 
right? If they're doing things that violate the scriptures, then you go to them and you say, hey, don't do this. And they persist on and well, hey, you've done this. Now you need to demonstrate the fruits of repentance. This is what the leadership of the church has asked of you to do. And they still say, no, 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 we're not doing that. Well, I don't think that's right. We're going to do our own thing. Then what do you do? Well, you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. You say, no, you have not demonstrated that you are truly a member of the family. But as a general rule, what happens? We say, hey, you're a member of the family. Sometimes there's correction that needs to be taken place in the family. We correct in love. We want to restore. We want to see people uh, grow in their relationship to continue to grow healthy and strong. But this is what happens in a family. It happens in any good family. And we love celebrating the moment when people are born again. But sometimes we don't realize the gravity of that term, you know, to be born again. Because when you talk about being a born again that means you got to be able to think again. You got to learn to to walk again, to talk again. You got to got to learn to live life again. And so somebody has to be in their life just kind of teaching them that hey, this is the Christian life. This is what it looks this is what this uh, messy discipleship class is all about. It's to be able to engage people and say this is what the Christian life looks like and we have to be ready to do that for people. Because nobody would, no, nobody would ever like bring a newborn home from the hospital, put the baby on the bed, and then hand the baby like a bunch of money and say, hey, this ought to get you what you need. You know, you'll be fine. This will, this will take care of all your needs. And, uh, you know, and here's the car keys in case you need to go anywhere. Right? You got everything you need now. We're sure life's going to be great for you. Go out and enjoy life. Nobody ever does that. I mean, that's horrible, right? I mean, we know that's just silliness. It doesn't work. But yet in the church, we, try, we do that kind of stuff all the time. Born again, we shout. But then we forget to walk with them and say, okay, now this is how you think. Now this is how you talk. This is how you walk. This is what the Christian life looks like. Um, but we don't do that, and then things don't turn out well, and we wonder Why? And oftentimes it's because we haven't taken the time to sit down with people and say this is what the Christian life looks like. Here's how, we don't just hand people a Bible and say figure it out, it's going to be great, life's going to be good, it's going to be wonderful. We say no, let me show you how to study this thing. Let me show you how to read it. Let me show you how you take the wisdom of the scriptures and then you apply that to your marriage. Let me show you how you take the wisdom of the scriptures and how you apply that to your parenting. Let me show you how you take the wisdom of the scriptures and apply that to your finances and to your diet and to your free time and to the way you interact with your neighbors and to the way you do your job. Let me show you how the scriptures speak to every area of life so that you can understand what the Christian life looks like. And that requires this confirmation into the image of Jesus. You know, as believers, we're continually being conformed into the image of, of Jesus. And if you've ever been conformed to somebody else's image, or you know it's a painful process, right? Because it requires change. It requires tension. Because I got this tension of the way I used to be and the tension of the way I used to think and the tension of the way I used to talk. And now I'm being pulled over here and I'm told to think differently. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm told to walk and live differently, to speak differently, to work differently, to do marriage differently and all this kind of stuff. And I feel this tension. That tension is a great thing to feel because it shows you that God is at work in your life and you're being conformed into the image of Jesus. The scariest place to be is to think you're a Christian and not feel any tension. Because if you don't feel any tension, if there doesn't seem to be any tension, what's generally happening is we are conforming Jesus into our image so we can be comfortable with him. And instead of us looking more like Jesus, we make Jesus look more like us. And then we feel good. Well, Jesus, just like me. None of us have arrived yet. None of us look like Jesus yet. We're all in process. Then when glorification, we're in heaven, it'll be great. But we're in process. And if we don't feel the tension, the struggle of that process from time to time, watch out. Because you're likely trying to make Jesus look more like you than you looking more like Jesus. The early church, they recognized this. And they said the only way that we're going to look more like Jesus is if, is if we just intertwine our lives together. If we hold on to each other, we got to meet together. We've we got to study what it is the apostles are teaching us. We've got to commit our lives to this. We have to remember the sacrifice of our Lord. We've got, to do, we've, got, we've got to take this sacrifice over and over and over again because then we realize, as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus and we realize what all he gave up for us, then our sacrifice of leaving mother, father, leaving son or daughter, it doesn't look so big anymore. Yeah, it's big, but when I consider what Jesus did and how he left heaven, and how this man of perfection came and lived among people who were broken and messed up. And, and he continued to show grace and love. And yeah, he was truthful and he was forceful at times. And he did all that. And then how he would die for us. He would give up all that for me, for you. Well, then all of a sudden our sacrifice over here, yeah, it's still big. But it doesn't look quite as big anymore. Because we see God who gave up everything for a broken people. And so the early church, they learn this and they gather together and they remind themselves of this. And they focus on the apostles' teaching. They say, okay, we are committing our lives to this so that we can grow up and we can be strong and we can be healthy and we can look more and more like Jesus. This is what we're going to do. This is what a good family does. And for this reason... You need to join an impact group. For this reason, you need to be an impact group because Jesus does not understand Lone Ranger Christianity. Okay, we, we made discipleship a very, very kind of private thing, right? And we've kind of told ourselves and convinced ourselves that the most intimate moments that you will ever have with God, the most precious moments that you will ever have with God are those moments that you have alone with God. That the most important Bible study you'll ever do is the quiet time that you have alone with God in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon. The, the, the most significant prayer time that you'll ever have with God are those moments where you're able to pray to God alone. But yet, as I come back to the scriptures and you read through the scriptures, Jesus knew nothing of that. The early church did not practice that. It was always community. It was we're studying the scriptures together. 
We are committing to understand the apostles' teaching together. We are intertwining ourselves together. As we go and we share Jesus, we're going to share Jesus together. It was always together. He sent them out two by two, always in relationship, always in community. I mean, the missionary journeys of Paul, he never just went out alone. I mean, he got like one day in Athens of all the missionaries. You know, he's just left alone. He's waiting for the guys. But other than that, he's always with people. In the last gasp of Jesus from the cross, of all the things that he needs to say and wants to say as he's up there, the, the thing that he knew that he had to say, he looked at John and he looked at Mary and he said, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. It's community. It's, it's, it's always, hey, you need each other. You got to live in fellowship with each other. We believe that Mary ended up moving to Ephesus with John and living there as he was the bishop there. And yeah, Mary had other sons and daughters. Jesus, you know, we, we know this. But every family needs a spiritual family. And so this family for Mary became John. And so Jesus gives John this new family and gives Mary this new spiritual family. In an intense conversation with Peter, Jesus says, I'm praying for you. you know, I'm praying for you that as you get your feet back under you, as you're able to stand tall again and breathe again and just live life again, I'm praying that you will go back and help your brothers. He doesn't say go back and help your fellow disciples. He doesn't say go back and help your friends. He says brothers. He says that you will go back and you will help your brothers. Then three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then three times Jesus would say, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my children. This is, this is the point. If you love me, if you love me, if you love me, then you're going to take care of my children. John would write in his letter that if you say you love God but you hate the people around you, you're a liar. You can't love God and not love his children. If you love God, you love his kids. It just kind of works that way. Understand this. That there's nothing more devastating to a church than church members talking bad about other church members in a pagan world. Okay? and Because you think you're just venting. Right? You think you're just letting a little steam off. You think, well, you know, they should probably know. But you know what the world hears? Wow. If they would talk that way about family, what in the world would they say about me? Because I know how messed up I am. And if they ever found out, what in the world would they say about me? You know, we're living in a world today where it's not unusual for a young man to grow up and try to be a husband, but he's never seen a good husband. A young lady grows up and tries to be a good mom. She's never seen a good mom. They're, they're, they're trying to have a good marriage. They've never seen a good marriage. They're trying to be good parents, and, you know, their heads are spinning. They're trying to figure this thing out because they've never seen good parents. Who's going to teach them? Who's going to be there to pray for them, to encourage them? We are. That's why you have to be in an impact group. We're starting new ones in, in April. If you missed out on this session, I encourage you to be in one in April because you're going you're, you're to be those people for them. You're going to invite those people into your homes. You know, discipleship is about information, but it's not solely about information. 
Because we know that knowledge just puffs up and then we think we got all the answers and we figured everything out. No, discipleship is ultimately transformation. It's ultimately conforming more and more into the image of Jesus, the feeling that tension of saying, I haven't got it yet, and it helps me to see others who are a little further along than I am. Helps me to have conversations with people, to see see what God's doing in their life. And so you connect with people, you meet people, and you go out and you you practice biblical hospitality, which isn't directed towards uh, people we know. Biblical hospitality is always toward the stranger, in the scriptures. It's always befriending the stranger and having cups of coffee and dinners and just helping them out with the questions of life. And I know some of you might be thinking, you know, Steve, I've been in church all my life and I don't think I'd get a whole lot out of an impact group. I don't think I want to be going into people's homes and that kind of, that just sounds uncomfortable. I, I wouldn't enjoy that. Um, it would make me feel awkward. I get that. But the group isn't for you. You know, where, where in the scripture do you ever get like, hey, you show up to the stuff that you like, to the stuff that's comfortable for you so, so that it's good for you? I, I don't see that at all. I, maybe you're in the group to build a relationship with another brother or sister and to say, hey, you know what? In, in my family, we went through some similar stuff with our kids and you know, we didn't do it exactly right, but, you know, if we had it to do over again, I'd have done something like this. Or I, I can see you're just starting out. You're, you have some, can, I, can I just come over and, like, help you learn how to cook a little bit? Or, hey, do you need help learning how to study the Bible? Maybe we can hang out and we can just read through some, you know, I'd get a lot out of that, too, because I, I, I need to talk this through with people. Uh, maybe you're not going to the group for you. In fact, I kind of hope you're not. Because we, we don't come to church for ourselves. We gather together as the family of God to encourage one another, to practice all those one another's, to love each other, to greet one another, to pray for each other, to counsel each other, to encourage each other. So that as we do that, then we're strengthened to go out and to tackle the week ahead and to remember, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. That it does get better than this. And this is what, this is what the, this is what, how a good family acts. We're responsible to each other, for each other. The way we show people how much we love Jesus is by how much we love one another. But how much we're willing to sacrifice for each other. You know, these people in the early church, they realized the only way that we're going to make it is if we just intertwine our lives together so that they know we are committed to you and your, your healthy growth as a believer. I don't have to go through the statistics of how broken our families are in our culture, how broken our homes are, how broken our world is, our society I mean, you know all this. But people are going to show up in your life. I mean, if you're living the Christian life at all, people are going to show up, and, and you may not even notice how white their knuckles are because they're just trying to hold on to life and everything that's going on, trying to make it through. And you're going to have the opportunity to tell them about a family who's waiting for them, a family who's ready to teach them, a family willing to walk with them. 
Because that's what a good family does. And many of these people, they don't know anything of a good family. And you're going to tell, I know where you can have a good family. I've experienced it. And you'll stand up and you'll say, you're my brother. I want you to be my brother. I want you to be my sister. Come. You know, the only way the Sequoias made it was by holding on to each other. If, If they didn't. They didn't intertwine their roots. If they didn't hold hands, the trees would fall down. They had to grow in groves. The only way the early church made it was by intertwining their lives, was by holding hands, was by sacrificing and committing themselves to each other. And so now, the church today, we get to learn a very, very old lesson in a very, very new way. That we must hold on to Jesus and we must hold on to each other. Because every family needs a church family. Heavenly Father, imprint this lesson on our hearts and minds. That you didn't save us just for ourselves, but you saved us for each other. That you've adopted us into a family. And God, as we consider what a good family does for each other, we, we know right off that we, we ought to encourage one another. We ought to love each other. We ought to pray for each other. We ought to cur- encourage counsel, correct, rebuke, in love. God, help us to do that well. Help us to not leave any as orphans, but to come alongside and not just hand them a Bible and say it's going to be good, but to say, let me, let me walk with you. Here's, here's how we think through stuff. Here's how the Bible gives wisdom to these different, every area of life. Help us to do that well. Because, God, we realize that how, mu- how we love each other reflects how much we love you. So help us to love others well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.